You're listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast with Chris Kidwell and Sam Glover. Sam, apparently, if you live in Tennessee or Georgia, the economy in your state is going to reopen as soon as the end of this week. Uh, That is a more aggressive timeline than many of the predictions that we've seen, and it's even more aggressive uh, than President Trump's timeline, which was considered to be very aggressive uh, by most uh, members of the media and by perhaps some who want to see him fail, but, you know, by a a great deal of people. Um, what, What do you think about the economy potentially reopening within the next week or to really uh, nationwide, but at least the next the next week uh, in those particular states. Okay, so this is going to disappoint people who expect me to have really hot takes, just ready to serve. But um, I understand why people are nervous. But at the same time, I also see all of that and think, okay, but you can still stay home even if your state has more or less opened back up. In some cases, I understand why that's not really an option, whether it be because you work for a manager that um, if you were in the hospital comatose, they would try to page nurses to wake you up and ask if you were still coming in for your shift. So I get that there are some cases where it's not as simple as you can still stay home if you feel that you need to. But at the same time, even if you have to leave and you're not thrilled about it, you can take precautions. You can wear an N95 mask if you feel it's needed. You can keep your distance from other people insofar as you're able. You can wash your hands a lot. Goodness knows I wash my hands so much that uh, I start to resemble uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger from the Terminator after he gets part of his hand uh, ripped off. So I get it. Uh, But still, I'm of two minds, and that's probably where I'm going to stay for a while. And and I think work, work here is really the flashpoint. When it comes to people choosing to go to gyms, choosing to go to you know, get their hair done, getting certain medical procedures done, even choosing to go to worship. People are able to make decisions in their own best interest uh, without really having to weigh it against something else significant. Uh, With regard to those things, it's not a matter of choosing, deciding how to best move forward with my family's well-being. If there is legitimate concern about this pandemic, then there are some things uh, in a few weeks, if there's legitimate concern about uh, the pandemic continuing, you know, there being another outbreak, then you still have the option to stay home. The flashpoint, though, is with regard to work, because my family's well-being uh, has directly pertains to whether or not I'm able to bring in income, pay the bills, uh, put food on the table, that sort of thing. Now, Kelsey and I are in a position where, you know, moving forward through this, we sort of know what it's going to look like moving forward and sort of know what the mindset is. Kelsey's uh, school district, in fact, the state has canceled all on-campus activity uh, through the end of the 2019-2020 school year. And so she won't have to make a decision on these sorts of things really until about August. For me, preaching at Bridge Creek, we will plan on taking into consideration when the restrictions are lifted, which as of right now, the safer at home order in Oklahoma extends through May 6th. And we will see if it continues or not, but we will see when those restrictions are lifted, what we need to do. And assuming that we act level-headedly, which I have full confidence we will, we are already starting to talk about what adjustments we're going to make to our services. Once we're allowed to start gathering together again, Assuming we act in an appropriate way, then I'm perfectly fine going and preaching week in and week out. I'm looking forward to gathering back together immensely. But for people who are still concerned, uh, especially those who are at risk, who are the most vulnerable, for most things, it's sort of elective, right? 
you get to choose whether or not you're actually going to participate. You're actually going to be there and, and get those things done. But when it comes to work, there are going to be people who are deeply uncomfortable with the situation, deeply uncomfortable uh, with what's going on, who feel like they still have to go to work or risk losing their job, at the very least risk losing their income. And that's a decision that a lot of people uh, don't want to have to make. Uh, that's part of the reason that you see a push for government to keep extending the guidelines because it does sort of get them out of some of those decisions. But, you know, there's there's difficulty there. And I think we would be remiss not to acknowledge the difficulty in that specific aspect. You know, uh, nobody wants this pandemic and the effect that it has on people, both medically and financially, to continue. Nobody wants those things. We're looking forward to getting back to a sense of normalcy. You know, we're looking forward to getting back to where we don't have to worry about, you know, washing our hands constantly. Well, maybe we should be doing that anyway. Uh, but wearing masks in public, uh, we don't have to worry about. You know where our next paycheck is going to come from if you're in that position or how long this is going to last, uh, whether or not your industry will eventually be affected. We're, we're looking forward to getting back to that sense of normalcy. But as of right now, um, when we look at the situation this pandemic has created, it's created a situation where a good chunk of the economy is shut down completely. Uh, we, we saw yesterday oil go negative in price. I think it got down close to negative $40 a gallon, which means uh, people who are involved in – I'm not an expert on this, but people who are involved in oil futures are having to pay people to take their futures so that they don't have oil basically delivered to their doorstep is, is a very layman way, I think, of saying uh, what all goes on with that. In reality, what it means is that oil wells are going to get shut down uh, energy company employees are going to get laid off or furloughed, or at the very least, they're you know they're not going to have a job to report to for you know however you want to technically define that. Uh, and, and we see this impacting more and more sectors of the economy to the point that at some point, you know, like you said, we've got to weigh the the balance here and see, okay, what can reopen, what should reopen, uh, what what does the government need to keep closed, as it were? I would be okay. I'm not going to be excited about it, but I would be okay if there's uh, a ban on large sporting events for a while just because of the the extraordinarily high risk of outbreak at a 20,000-plus person event. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what ends up happening, but we've got to weigh that risk against what's going to happen if we keep this thing shut down. And so that, that testing the water language, I think is important here. Uh, I don't know if it's the wisest thing uh, to go ahead and reopen the economy as soon as the end of this week uh, and to fully reopen it next week, as I think Georgia is intending on doing. But that's just the thing. I don't know. And I don't know that there are a lot of people who do know. I know that there are uh, different predictions about what's being made, but as we've been mentioning, a lot of this information that's come in is uh, conflicting at times or uneven at times. And, you know, so I, I understand the position and I'm like you, I've got a fairly lukewarm take on this. I understand the position that says we need to th get things closed down uh, longer. But in reality, that position, unless you're going to hold that we need to keep it closed until we have a vaccine that can be administered, then your date for whatever longer is is really sort of arbitrary. And so I, I, I sort of sympathize with that position, but I, I'm not all the way there with you either. Uh, not you specifically, Sam, but with those who hold that position. Um, and on the other side, some people that when the economy reopens – if they're deeply uncomfortable with the pandemic, if if this is still going on and we're reopening it in the midst of a pandemic, then you're going to have some people that are put into it, realistically no-win situations. Um, you know, we we've seen outbreaks. I mentioned, I think I mentioned last week. I can't remember if I did, uh, but the Smithfield Farms uh, plant up in South Dakota, which provides five percent of all of the nation's pork supply. 
it closed down because of an outbreak. And when the economy reopens, I would not be surprised to hear of a case or two like that. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm not hoping it happens, but it very well could. And, you know, the workers that would be in those sorts of environments would be concerned. And and I think rightfully so. But even their concern, I I don't know what the right decision here is, is what I'm getting at. Um, I know what the right decision is for Kelsey and me. Uh, and I know the circumstances we we're living in. I know the hand we've been dealt. But as far as nationwide or even on a state level, I don't know what the right decision is. I do think probably on a state level, it varies state by state. Uh, I do think Oklahoma, for instance, is going to be uh, better suited to reopen uh, more quickly than, say, New York is, which New York has just been ravaged by this thing. Um, New York has just been sort of the epicenter in in the country, at least, of this outbreak. But beyond that, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to throw out dates without, you know, having a full understanding of everything that's going on. And even if I did, I wouldn't be able to sort of translate it because I'm not a medical expert. And I'm not uh, an economics expert, although I'm probably a little bit more well-versed in that than I am in uh, in, you know, the medical aspect of it. But when it comes to this, I, like I said, I, I, I'm with you on this, that I'm fairly lukewarm. Um, I understand the concern both ways and I don't really know how I would handle it if I were in a position to make those sorts of decisions. And so we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, what I hope happens is that Georgia and Tennessee are test cases and that things go well, uh, to the point where other states are able to reopen and things just keep getting better. That's what you hope happens. And on the flip side of that, what could very obviously happen here is that those states reopen their outbreaks in those states and they spread to states that did not reopen. Uh, I mean, that's a very real possibility that's on the table. That's why uh, Tennessee and Georgia potentially reopening are of concern to us here in Oklahoma, as well as you in Mississippi. Uh, you know, there we do not have walls built around states, right? We don't take check people's temperatures when they move across state lines. Um, and I think it's important to recognize those concerns as being legitimate uh, without necessarily making those concerns uh, without necessarily pushing those concerns over and against the concerns about the the economy, which we're not talking just about money just about numbers with the economy we're talking about people's lives who have been desperately affected uh, by everything that's going on right and there's a there's a problem with uh, the people who are saying that we shouldn't reopen things until we have a vaccine and i and simply put i am at the absolute best an amateur uh epidemiologist or any other uh, ologist, really. But um, vaccines take a long time to produce. Like just like, and that's not like a flaw. That's just, that's just the nature of it, man. Like it takes a long time to actually put together uh, trials to study how things work. It takes a while to actually say, okay, can we introduce this into a system watch antibodies develop and then reliably replicate that process can we do this in animals then can we do it in humans then can we get the fda to allow us to put it out for public consumption and goodness like it's it is a logistics nightmare that makes anything i've ever had to deal with as far as bureaucracy feel like a walk in the park so there are people like I've seen anecdotally people saying uh, Dr. Fauci suggesting that we can't really reopen until there's a vaccine and then saying that could take 12 to 18 months. That's unrealistic. Not the estimate for how long it could take to make a vaccine. If you really just put your nose to the grindstone, you can do it. Um, I wrote my thesis in under a year, and that was at least as grueling a process. <laughs> but um, more seriously... The notion that we need to stay closed for 12 to 18 months, that's unrealistic. And I think most people are willing to concede that. The question isn't, what are the unrealistic options? Because I think 
most people can recognize the unrealistic. It's figuring out, okay, out of the realistic options, what are the best ones? And I really want to just keep coming back to that idea. I may have mentioned it in a previous episode. I, I don't remember because, honestly, a lot of times these become a blur. Uh, any conversation I have, not just the ones that are recorded, but you're only I've, a few I feel a, from anarchy. I feel attacked. Oh, no, no, no. This is not you. It's just... The way the the mind of Sam Glover works is an enigma, is a riddle wrapped within a mystery, wrapped within an enigma, within an enigma to mangle the words of uh, Winston Churchill. How about so, the words of uh, Patrick Starr? The, the inner machinations of my mind are an enigma. Even better. Yeah. There uh, because go. there are days where I feel about like Patrick Starr. But um, more to the point, we're only a few missed meals from anarchy. And that's not necessarily true of me or you or just individuals that we know, because like realistically, if it comes down to it, like I live in a state where we have a time of the year set out where we basically tell people, please go kill as many deer as humanly possible, because otherwise they'll overrun us. And a deer you might get tired of eating deer meat, but you can survive off of that and vegetables or like any number of other things. We have options like it might not be pleasant. It might not be easy, but you or I could go out and kill an animal, skin it and cook it and eat it to survive. Not everyone has that option because of where they live. Not everybody has the tools to do that. Not everybody has the stomach for that. And so there are some people who, if this goes on long enough, the question will be, okay, do I risk getting a virus that I could survive or do I die of hunger or exposure or of any number of other things? And that's not a that's not me saying those things will happen, but it is something that we have to seriously think about. Depressions have fatalities attached to them as well. Uh, people die during severe economic downturns because of loss incurred and a driving, not to get super heavy, but a driving factor for suicide, for instance, is unemployment and unemployment is skyrocketing right now. Some people just lose whatever they had as far as will to live when they lose their job. So, again, I don't want to be super morbid or say these things are definitely going to happen. But that is something we have to seriously consider, that there are serious ramifications to continuing to clamp the economy down. And that's a uh, to that point, I want to say 22 million Americans have filed for unemployment within the past month. I mean, that that number, that's what that's like eight percent of the country, six, seven uh, percent of the country, something like that. That's well, that's the thing. Let's see. Uh, there are roughly, let's say, 350 million people in they, they the anticipate, United States. They anticipate at the end of this year's census a number between 330 and 340. Uh, and and that, that would be a conservative number because they're not going to get information on every single person. So, Right. But you also have to consider that that's not the entire workforce accounted for. The workforce is about 200 million. Sure. So... So it's north of 10% of the workforce uh, filing for unemployment, uh, let alone those who had already been unemployed, if you will, before, in, in months prior. Um, you know, and, and that's the thing. I, I've seen – I've had people tell me that, you know, they're, they're not doing well financially with this. And the attitude sort of that gets them through is, you know, I ask them, are – are they doing okay? And they say, well, you know, it's going to be tough, but at the same time, I'm not the only person going through this. It's not just me that they have to sort of pick up. It's not just me that's suffering from this. And that's sort of the attitude, right? Like people understand that when they're going through this, or at least they should understand if, if they are struggling financial difficulty, that this, this will at some point turn around because it has to, right? That the economy is not especially 
picking on you, although it feels like it. I'm not saying that that sort of feeling isn't uh, is it difficult to deal with. It's it's awful for anyone who's lost their job uh, or has been put in a difficult situation uh, as a result of this pandemic financially. Um, but it, the that number is so significant that the turnaround has to be swift and decisive as soon as we can. Right. Um, it doesn't need to be reckless. I, I think sort of gradually reintroducing things here would be important. Um, again, I I don't know how I feel about what Georgia and Tennessee are doing over the weekend. I do know uh, that I would be very not OK with baseball season starting up on May 1st in regular uh, stadiums. That's not going to happen. But, you know, if you had every single day 15 spots uh, on the continent, because, you know, Toronto is a part of MLB, uh, 15 spots on the continent where you had in probably 13 of those 15 spots, at least 15,000 people gathering every single day without exception, then, yeah, I'm going to have a problem with that because I, I think that's sort of reckless, right? You're, you're talking about what? I don't know. You're talking million and a half people uh, per week, close to two million people per week uh, gathering together uh, in, in what for 15,000 people is a fairly confined space. I, I think that would be reckless, but there's a line there somewhere, right, between nothing other than grocery stores uh, and other essential, currently essential businesses are allowed to open and these humongous gatherings. What I'm interested in, especially uh, from a selfish perspective, is what that's going to mean for congregations, uh, too, you know, because let alone the economic fallout, we'll, we'll swing back around to that shortly, but let alone the economic fallout when we look at the when we look at the look at congregations and i don't know what the ban will be uh what the restriction will be but i assume that there will be some sort of gradual restriction in most places um i wonder what most congregations are going to end up doing at bridge creek uh we can reasonably assume that when the restrictions get lifted that with a couple of changes to our services we will probably be able to meet as normal we'll probably change a little bit about how we do communion we will in all likelihood change uh, a little bit about certain procedural things at the building as well uh, but being a congregation of less than 100 people i would be a little bit surprised if when our safer at home order is lifted be it on may 6th or some number of days afterward if uh, if we're not allowed to just go ahead and meet as normal, but you get a congregation of ten times what we are, you get a congregation that's close to a thousand people. Um, I don't know that legally they're going to be allowed to gather in most places. They might. I don't know what the specific restrictions in Tennessee and Georgia are going to be against those things, uh, but they might be allowed to gather. Um, and putting aside the question of whether or not they should be gathering, uh, I'll be very interested to see how those congregations make certain adjustments, if some of them make any adjustments at all. If we go to split services uh, in some places where you've got maybe four services throughout the day on Sunday, um, if there are certain procedures taken within the buildings of most of these places. I don't know what that looks like, but you mentioned logistically how this is a nightmare uh, and that was just for vaccines, mostly it logistically, basically anything that isn't living in your own home is going to be a nightmare. Uh, and that's logistically a nightmare if you have toddlers anyway. And so the, it's very possible that when all this opens up, you know, the logistics of how to run anything uh, are going to be just so out of whack that it takes some time to adjust uh, it takes some time to figure out what the right thing is. It takes, as we've already mentioned with some of these states opening, a little bit of trial and error. Um, but I'll be interested to see what certain congregations do, especially those that are uh, much larger than we are at Bridge Creek and sort of the uh, decisions that they make moving forward, uh, sort of a test case in how to respond to something like this. 
Right, and as for uh, sporting events and all that sort of thing, if we were to go into those full speed ahead, uh, to put it uh, plainly, uh, a certain Molly Hatchet song comes to mind, uh, one uh, flirting with disaster. But more seriously, no matter what, there's going to be a logistics nightmare. And you mentioned the no-win situation. Um this will get me uh, pinned as a cynic, but I'm not, I promise. I'm just a disappointed idealist. Um, most things in life are no-win situations after a certain point. The question isn't, is it a no-win situation? It's, okay, how do I get through the no-win situation and on to the next no-win situation? Or even better... Sometimes you can say, as Robert, I believe it was uh, Ebert would have said, the winning move is not to play. But um, there are some games in life that you know you can't win, but you have to play anyway. And I feel like this is one of them. Because on the one hand, you have tens of thousands of deaths from an infectious disease. On the other, you have the excuse me, potential economic impacts and loss of life that come from that. So you have two scenarios where it's saying, okay, do you want to cut off your ring finger or do you want to cut off your index finger? And there are things to be said for both of those fingers. I like both of those fingers. I have uses for both of those fingers. So figuring that out is always going to be the hard part. And as for Georgia and Tennessee, I want their testing of the waters to go well, especially because... Uh, they'll serve, like you mentioned, as sort of test runs. But even in my own state of uh, Mississippi, uh, forever beautiful, forever in my heart, our, our, our own governor extended the stay-at-home order a few weeks back to go out to the 27th. So it's looking like that would end at the same time, but I haven't been able to find any indications that he's extended it further. And he might, depending on how things turn out but really i think the main takeaway is like you're just gonna have to bite down on the rope and just recognize that the beatings will continue until morale improves well and it's i don't envy any of those uh governors either of those governors positions or any of the governor's positions and we're seeing different governors make different decisions i think i want to say new york has extended its uh stay at home order until maybe the end of may i think that's the furthest out anyone has extended it might be mid-may i I forget off the top of my head but you know it's it's an unenviable position but really if you're involved in this at all and on any level it's an unenviable position like nobody wants this Nobody wants to have to deal with this, but the reality is we've got to figure out how to move forward. And that's the thing is we have to figure out how to move forward, right? Uh, I don't get to stick my head in the sand and say, see you in three months or six months. As we've seen with this, um, things change day in and day out as far as information received, as far as what, what the projections look like, right? Uh, two, two and a half weeks ago, we were talking you know, six figures worth of deaths, potentially north of 200,000, best case. Uh, and we've yet to hit that, and we may have already hit the peak of this thing. Um, and so some flexibility in this, I think, is important, too. It's like, you know, maybe don't plan out, um, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks in advance for something that you can't really reasonably plan for. Uh, and so that that's tough. I mean, ev- even at Bridge Creek, we're making mm. the decision to uh, uh, like we have ideas about what's going to happen. But outside of a couple of things in the coming weeks, we've not made any firm decisions as far as what it's going to look like yet, because we don't know when we're going to be allowed to go back yet. So why make the decision right now? Right. And if I can be a bit uh, cute, as some might say, it's almost as if uh, someone once upon a time writing to the 12 scribes, uh, the 12 tribes, good grief, not scribes, in the dispersion said, 
Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Just your contractual reminder that we are both Christian ministers, and so there is our obligatory Bible reference for the hour. From the uh, from the book of Jacob, if I remember correctly. Correct. Yeah, that's right. Um, no, we it's it's something where when we look at what we're going to be doing moving forward, I would rather maintain the position that we're going to plan out a few weeks at a time at most, maybe a few days at a time, because you you need to try and plan something with the understanding that your plans might fall through and with the understanding that you don't want to plan so far out in advance as to give people a a false sense of security. Like if you told – if President Trump came out and told people today that the economy would be 100 percent open, that he would sign some sort of amendment. I don't know what the, the, the formal way of doing this would be, probably an executive order, but he would sign some sort of formal documentation saying the economy is going to be open on May 1st that businesses even considered non-essential are going to be allowed to be uh, to reopen. If he were to do that and we get new information between now and then saying that the pandemic is getting worse, then what has happened is you you have caused companies to pin their hopes on reopening on May 1st, people here. And when we say companies, we're not, you know, companies are made up of people. Uh People to say they're going to get to go back to work on May 1st. They're going to get to start making money. And if that doesn't happen, then all of a sudden it's throwing everything out of whack. And so I would rather maintain flexibility and skepticism with regard to what we're going to be able to do with the understanding that, you know, if, okay, maybe it is by next Monday that we recognize, hey, we can really reopen this thing at any time. I I doubt it, but maybe we get to that point. If we do, then we can say, all right, well, we'll go ahead and plan on doing that within the next few days. You don't have to give that much notice to sort of uh, reopen things, if you will. You, you don't really need to do that. Um, but if you give people too much notice about something that doesn't end up happening, then it's going to go very sideways. Um, uh, it, it'll go very sideways very quickly if you're not careful. And so... I am fine like if the if the executive order or rather if the safer at home order in Oklahoma gets extended next week for instance say a week before it was set to expire on May 6th then I would rather that happen uh than be told today we will with certainty um we will with certainty sort of reopen the economy on the 6th and then that not end up happening I think it's a lot uh, it's a lot safer and it's a lot better for people to to be transparent about that sense of flexibility. That's the important part of all of this is to is to be transparent about your decision making process and to be transparent uh, about why you're maybe uh, not so quick to make sweeping generalizations about what will and won't happen, uh, but to allow for that flexibility in whatever rhetoric you're using as opposed to. You know, being rigid with it and saying we're going to go ahead and do this, uh, you know, three, four, five weeks in advance of actually doing it. Right, and if I may offer an anecdote that I think will serve as a helpful comparison, um, we all buy things off of Amazon. I, I don't think that's a controversial assumption, even if people have some ethical concerns about Amazon, and we get our little shipping estimates. And sometimes you might notice those shipping estimates are several weeks long, like saying, okay, it could get here anywhere between April 20th and May 17th. And part of that is because just sometimes shipping takes a while. But also, Chris, when was the last time you were angry about a package arriving early based on any estimate you were given? Never. Exactly. If you give people a long shot estimate and then you make it within that estimate, people are going to be happy with it. Even if you put forth a fairly mediocre effort, 
if you exceed the expectation that you set for people, they're going to be happy with what you did. It, but on the flip side, Chris, you might not have gotten angry or asked to speak to the manager, but how many times have you been miffed because a package came late? I am always at least slightly disappointed. Exactly. So it's a risk-reward game of how low do I want the expectations. It's, it's like a game of limbo, almost. If, if you just set the bar to normal height, sure, it's not that impressive that you can get under it, but you're also not, being a, you're also not making a fool of yourself. So there's that. But also to change gears, and I'm sorry to spring this on you, Christopher, but there was an interesting occurrence reported yesterday out of um, the beautiful nation state of North Korea. I don't know if you heard about this. I I have only seen rumblings that something in North Korea was a thing, but beyond that, I have zero uh, idea what you're about to tell me. Okay, so uh, one Katie Tour or Tur, I don't I don't want to mispronounce her name, especially given that it's three letters, but um reported uh, based on sources, uh, she said that she had a great deal of confidence in, that Kim Jong-un, the uh, glorious leader, actually that's not his title, that's reserved for his grandfather, but um, the, uh, the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, was functionally brain dead after heart surgery. That caused a lot of uh, concern because the question is, Chris, who is next in line? to be the leader of North Korea? I cannot tell you. Yeah, neither can North Korea. Because Kim Jong-un doesn't have any sons that we know about. His sister is a woman, and North Korea is a deeply patriarchal, in the classical sense term, uh, in the classical sense of the term, society. So they won't accept his sister, regardless of how well... Uh, credential she might be for the task as their leader. So that threw a lot of things into chaos. And then Katie Tur retracted that, and South Korea released a, uh, basically put out a press release from their presidential office saying that rumors about uh, the leader of North Korea were greatly exaggerated. So in all of this, there's a few things to learn. One, North Korea is still a despotic state run by maniacs that I won't feel sorry for when I hear of their passing. And also be careful with what you source and what you post, like even at a micro level, because people are still laying into that woman. I think a bit harshly, but still just laying into her for not doing sufficient due diligence. So, that I just that came to me. I was thinking about that earlier, and just wanted to throw that in as a change of pace from talking about the lockdown orders and the stay in place orders. Something to think about for everyone. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, that's the thing with news like that is it. First of all, it is really strange that there was a major news story that had nothing to do with either the presidential election or the coronavirus outbreak, unless it ends up having to do with the coronavirus outbreak. Um, it's very uh, strange. For clarification, I'm very sorry to interrupt, but uh, the report was that uh, Kim Jong-un had had heart surgery and slipped into a coma while he was in recovery from surgery, so, hmm. for what it's worth. Yeah, well, uh, I, I suppose... At some point, I well, I was about to say, I suppose at some point we may get some further clarification on what exactly has happened. But it's North Korea. There's no guarantee of that happening. Um, you know, it's rare for a news story to break like that through this coronavirus haze, if you will, because, uh, I mean, the news has absolutely been dominated by things pertaining to the pandemic and with good reason, of course. But it's just very strange. The, the first thing that shocked me when you said that is oh, it's an actual story of a thing that may or may not have happened that has nothing to do with this coronavirus. That's refreshing. Um, then I realized... Oh, yeah, the I was, world still turns. Yeah, then I realized... Yeah, yeah, and as with last week, we're glad it does. Um, but with... 
then I'm thinking, you know, I don't know that a story about North Korea is all that refreshing, to be honest, uh, with how awful, just awful things are over there and the, the awful people who run the country. Um, I, I suppose we probably will get uh, a little bit more information moving forward, um, you know, if – uh, if he does indeed pass on from something, which, you know, I did a little bit of digging online just a second ago while, while you were discussing it. I, it seems like the information is fairly conflicting right now as to what has actually happened. Um, and so if, uh, if we, if he does end up passing, my guess would be, we don't actually hear about a replacement until they're, or we don't actually hear about his passing until they've got a replacement in line. Um, I cannot imagine uh, that that country, even for a second, presenting itself to the world publicly without a totalitarian leader. Right. And the thing is, a lot of people forget about this, but uh, North Korea has a constitution. Uh, they actually keep it on display in some government building in Pyongyang. But uh, the more important governing document of North Korea is the Ten Commandments that they have, not the Ten Commandments of Moses, but the Ten Commandments of the Glorious Leader, um, who, goodness, I always, I can get Kim Jong-un and Kim Jong-il straight, but I believe the Glorious Leader was Kim Il-sung, and I apologize if I get that wrong. I should know this better, because I follow a guy who is one of the, one of the people that writes about, discusses North Korea pretty heavily. But the glorious leader put Ten Commandments down and stone, the tenth of which is essentially that the leader of Korea, because again, they see they don't think North Korea, South Korea, there is one Korea and they're the ruler of it, just South Korea hasn't abdicated to that yet. That the leader of North that the leader of Korea must always be a descendant from that bloodline. So they have a functionally a hereditary monarchy. And I, I, I'm not familiar enough with it. You know, the intricacies of who would be considered a part of that bloodline in the event that Kim Jong-un doesn't have a, a suitable heir, if you will. Um, but I, I don't know who would be, I guess it's the, uh, the Supreme leader, uh, which, makes me immediately think of the newest Star Wars trilogy, and so I'd rather really forget about that title. But oh, it, Understandable. But uh, when I look at, you know, look at what's going on over there, it's, I mean, it is just, it's an awful, awful situation. Um, you know, I, uh, when, when I look at that, it's, it's something where I don't want, I don't actively root for people. Uh, to die, but at the same time, um, there's an understanding there that with the uh, with the passing of a leader like that, it it does create an opportunity for change. Whether or not the nation is able to capitalize on it is uh, a different thing entirely. But it, it that uncertainty that would be brought on would create at the very least an opportunity uh, for change uh, within North Korea. Um, and so, I don't know. That's uh, that's jarring. No, I hadn't heard anything about that before you mentioned it. I, I'd seen a couple of people post about North Korea on social media this morning, but I hadn't actually seen um, anything as far as you know why, basically uh, why that had been mentioned. It was, I guess, in retrospect, what they posted was really tangential at best, and maybe spurred them on. Someone posted you know, a book reference and different things like that. But I, I didn't re realize that there was an actual story uh, that may have motivated some of those posts. So, um, so you wrote uh, within the past nine days, you have written two articles, which really probably should just be read as one very long article um, about penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, which is something that you're very clearly a fan of, uh, given that you, uh, 
I mean, the title of the articles were, was uh, Penal Substitution is Beautiful, uh, Part 1 and Part 2. Um, I don't want you to, to go back over your articles. I think people would do well to sort of, uh, sort of read the articles themselves, perhaps with one exception here. I, I'm, it might be worthwhile to sort of articulate in a nutshell what we're referring to or what you're referring to when you talk about penal substitutionary atonement. But maybe talk a little bit about that. Um, maybe talk a little bit about sort of how that interacts, especially, uh, I, I think, for many of our listeners, especially with how that would interact with you know, sort of within churches of Christ, uh, how that interacts with what we have traditionally believed, what we don't believe, uh, and maybe what some of our, um, if not blind spots, uh, then at the very least, uh, you know, some either study or lack of study, uh, which has been traditionally exhibited uh, by us, if you will. Right. And, and there's a lot to unpack there, especially in the the good old COC uh, historically. But penal substitutionary atonement, or PSA, as I abbreviated it, because there's only so many times you can type that phrase out, um, in a nutshell, is the Christian doctrine that Jesus Christ, in his death on the cross, suffered the penalty that we as sinful people deserve for our sin. And in doing so, he paid the penalty for our sin. He satisfied the wrath of God against sin. And in his resurrection, uh, that payment is validated as being accepted. It vindicates Jesus as a sinless one who did not deserve to die. And it demonstrates to us that we have indeed been forgiven. And that stands, I don't think necessarily in contrast to, but is often put in contrast to other models or theories of atonement. The most common ones being uh, moral exemplar view, which again isn't that common, but it is a historical view, which you're going to find in the works of men like Peter, Peter excuse me, Abelard, and a group of, uh, I believe, Unitarians in 17th century England called the Socinians. Uh, the moral exemplar view being that Jesus died to show us how we ought to live, essentially, that he died so that we could see his death and just how good of a man he was and how good his life and death were, that it would inspire us to be better. Then there's the ransom view, which is sometimes conflated with a Christus Victor view, mainly because of the overlap in language, but a ransom view uh, traditionally teaches that Jesus, in his dying on the cross, offered himself as a ransom to Satan in exchange for the souls of mankind. I take issue with that framing of the ransom model, because, well, why does Satan get paid anything? But that's neither here nor there just yet. Uh, the Christus Victor view takes some of the aspects of the ransom model and says, yes, that, but also... Jesus, in his death, triumphed over sin and death and stripped them of their power. And none of those necessarily exclude penal substitutionary atonement, and penal substitutionary atonement doesn't exclude any of those necessarily. The issue is that in, especially in recent uh, discussions, uh, you'll have people, the one that always comes to mind for me is Brian Zahn, because I just, I know the name, I have a book of his that he wrote, and I, he's a person that can clearly put a face to a name. He's not the only one, though. But uh, who will say that penal substitution is grotesque, that it makes God out to be a monster, it's divine child abuse, it makes Jesus the divine whipping boy, that sort of thing. And so I take issue with that. I explain why in the essays. In fact, I think that is blasphemous. But uh, Brian Zahn probably doesn't really care whether or not what I think he says is blasphemous. But that's that's not here nor there. All of that to kind of give an idea of what the different models of atonement theory are. The one neglected the most, and I didn't even mention it in the article just because 
it's really kind of fell by the wayside is satisfaction. So uh, I'm, I'm interrupting. To be clear, Go the one it. neglected the most is the one you neglected too, which is there's some irony in that. Oh yeah, certainly. But uh, uh, I, and I'd, I'd admit that. But uh, anyway, sorry to cut you off there. But satisfaction models, uh, they were first posited by Anselm of Canterbury, who, great in a lot of ways, but uh, Anselm posited that rather than paying a ransom, especially to Satan, that the cross was a means by which the, ra- the honor of God could be satisfied against sin. Uh, sin being injurious to God's honor and dignity, and so satisfaction has to be made. And in many respects, penal substitution is an evolution of the satisfaction theory. And I think that, and with the concession that I am not a professional uh, historical theologian yet, um, I think that's in part why satisfaction is so largely neglected uh, is that in many ways it is a groundworking for the articulations of penal substitution that you'll see in the likes of Martin Luther and John Calvin. As to its history in the churches of Christ, in a great deal of conservative, quote unquote, we'll say mainline churches of Christ, PSA is the default teaching of the of atonement that you'll get with some exceptions that's partially because of how influential mainline evangelicalism is on the modern churches of christ but also in part because that was a view that was held with some tensions in early restoration history Barton Stone, I don't recall which view of the atonement he held. I want to say he held a ransom view. I could be mistaken. We'll happily accept correction on that. But Alexander Campbell specifically uh, struggled tentatively with penal substitution because in his view, it was difficult to hold the PSA consistently and not be a Calvinist. And so he had rejected Calvinism at that point in his life. And so he found it difficult to maintain PSA while also rejecting Calvinism. I don't think that's a necessary dichotomy. But again, I wasn't Campbell. I didn't have his life experiences, his his experiences, education, that sort of thing. So I can only critique from afar. All that to say, that is going to be your default teaching in most conservative, quote-unquote, churches of Christ and most evangelical churches. You will usually hear of Ransom or Christus Victor once you start getting more towards, for lack of a better word, your more eccentric preachers within the church. Uh, And I don't say eccentric as a pejorative there it's just the best word i can think of as they're not this exactly the same as you or i and in many ways you'll also see people come to ransom as a rejection of issues that they take with psa uh a person i know respect very dearly he'll like in in our discussions about it he'll outright tell me you know i have deep-seated problems with PSA, and I struggle not to see PSA as putting Jesus forth as a divine whipping boy, and I, I push back on that, and I kind of challenge him on that, and we kind of go back and forth, and we've managed to keep it respectable so far, but all of that to say, PSA tends to be a default, partially because the Protestant Reformation is so influential in non-Roman Catholic thought, and even today, a lot of nominal Roman Catholics would probably hold to PSA. I would assume that the satisfaction view of atonement is the general default in Roman Catholicism because it was posited by a saint of the Roman Catholic Church. Excuse me, but Roman Catholicism is not an area of expertise for me, so 
I, I don't want to pin too much on that assumption. So one of the reasons I wanted to ask you to elaborate on it is, uh, and, and I appreciate you elaborating on sort of the spectrum, if you will, of, of thought in a generalized way with regarding atonement. I get the impression that most people within Churches of Christ do not necessarily assign a label to their thought, and, and I realize their belief, and, and I realize that that is something that is true for a number of different beliefs held by most Christians, um, that they don't necessarily title what they believe or how they believe about a particular issue. But I think it's especially pertinent about the cross, uh, about atonement. What occurred on the cross? If you're if you're to ask a member of a, uh, of the church that, they're not going to be able to provide you with a quick label. They're going to give you a paragraph, and I'm not suggesting that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, I would rather get that paragraph than get a label from someone who doesn't understand what the label means. But when it comes to these labels, sometimes we will see, oh, this person, and especially if it's someone outside of Churches of Christ, this person believes in penal substitutionary atonement. Well, that's wrong. Well, maybe you ought to consider that in light of what you actually believe. Um, maybe you ought to explore what that is. Now, as you mentioned, there are people uh, who we know, both of us know, um, who disagree with it. I heard a lecture that basically tried to disprove penal substitutionary atonement. I've heard one this year. And I think there are some points to be drawn uh, from a critique of penal substitutionary atonement. Namely, I would not limit what Christ did on the cross to simply what penal substitutionary atonement generally affirms, right? And, and that's why I appreciate you saying, look, look, there can, there's stuff that we can take from other theories uh, beyond PSA that matters, uh, that, that is true. But the things we take from other theories of atonement do not come into conflict necessarily, like you said, with uh, penal substitutionary atonement. And so I can understand critiquing that, but at the same time, um, you know, I, I think by and large, most Christians either haven't fully explored the thought uh, of what was accomplished on the cross uh, to sort of an extreme pursuit. You know, sometimes we're, su we, we're sufficient to say Jesus died for my sins and he was resurrected so I can have a hope of a home with him in heaven. Right. And, you know, I'm not necessarily saying that that shouldn't be the starting point for our discussion of that. But that should be the starting point. What does it mean when we say he died for my sins? Um, why did he have to die for my sins? Which, if I remember right, that was what Anselm was trying to answer, is why did Jesus have to die? Uh, in fact, he, he, he's, he came up with sort of a, uh, what's the term? Logical argument for why Jesus had to die uh, that we still use today. Right, and I mean, he... And goodness, the really even beyond just why did he have to die? Um, satisfaction comes out of uh, his book titled uh, Credeus Homo, uh, usually translated Why God Became Man, and uh, how you can get Credeus Homo to how God became man is a question I can't answer because I don't know Latin. So, but anyway, uh, that that I would say is a fair assessment of. Uh, that and I would even go on to further affirm yes, absolutely. There's nothing wrong with the simple answer. Uh, a simple faith is every bit as a, a saving faith as a more complex and robust faith. Uh, so I don't want to begrudge anyone right. who doesn't really seriously think about these things all day, every day. But at the same time, you're I would also say you're right, it's good to go beyond. Well, and I think it's a part of maturation too, is the idea that. We keep searching for answers to questions that come up as we continue searching. It's sort of a cyclical process. Um, 
what does it mean that Jesus died for me? Well, if we talk, uh, we start talking about a sort of penalty that's involved, as PSA discusses uh, at length. In fact, that's really what the the idea is centered around. Okay, well, why does the penalty exist to begin with? Um, and, and you just keep asking question after question after question. Um, that's different, I think, though, than outright rejecting it wholesale. And that's that's sort of what I would caution against is is rejecting people who reject one theory or another wholesale in part because sometimes people are doing that just because it's what other people believe. But we talked about that last week. Um, But also in part because, you know, these things are worth exploring and it's, it's interesting to me. um, And I think helpful to me personally, but it's at least interesting to me to know that, there are people in the church, people among our uh, brotherhood, um, if you will, who will disagree on a number of issues uh, and agree on a number of rather unimportant issues. Uh, at the very least, agree on a number of issues that are less fundamental to our faith than the sacrifice of Christ. Um I would argue the only thing more fundamental to our faith than uh, the atoning sacrifice of Christ is the belief in the resurrection that followed it. Um, Paul describes that resurrection as being of first importance. And so I, I think that serves as the foundation of our faith. But, you know, the idea of Jesus' sacrifice and what all that does for us, the fact that we can disagree on that uh, and still, you know, remain in fellowship uh, you know, still have that connection. Uh, that that's interesting to me. Um, you know, and I'm not necessarily saying that that's that's wrong. That you know, that we disagree, that people disagree on the atonement. To be clear, I'm not saying I disagree with you on it, but that people disagree on the atonement, and then, uh, but still remain in fellowship. It's just interesting to me because you would think it's something so fundamental to our faith uh, that we have to get it right. Now, granted, other other religious groups, you you do have to get that right, or at least you have to be close. I know that's uh, – I forget if that's a part of the Baptist faith and message. I do know that uh, in the interview for uh, Midwestern, that was one of the things they wanted to be sure uh, that I had a full understanding of, and they wanted to know where exactly I stood on on atonement when I was uh, – when I applied there. Um, but that's something that, you know, we, we don't – take as i don't want to say we don't take it as seriously but it's not at the forefront of uh, of what we sort of rally around um you know we have often focused on how we come into contact with that saving sacrifice more so than what the saving sacrifice actually did and that's that's interesting to me if nothing else right and even beyond the uh, arguments over the uh over the how shall we say the the hands-on application of the atonement um, there's also i think it's just an element of so much of coc if i can use that term history being rooted in pragmatism not in a say well we'll do what is pragmatic rather than what is right but rather our concerns have always been very pragmatic and very hands-on centered and very centered around our practice and what we do and how we do it. But if I can build on the idea of PSA and incorporating other models, and I did affirm this in the essay, although I didn't build it out fully, um, to me at least, I'm able to hold other pieces of the puzzle, so to speak, from uh, different atonement theories because PSA allows them to happen. Um, just kind of going down the list, Jesus Christ can be my example because he has taken away my sin and given me in his death new life. And that kind of veers off into the imputation of his righteousness and his character but and that's a whole different discussion as far as justification and sanctification go but suffice it to say jesus can be my example because he has by his death given me 
the gift of being a new person with a new heart and a new character given to me by the Holy Spirit. I can affirm ransom in saying that because my sin is forgiven, I can be ransomed back to God. And I can be ransomed back to God, not as an enemy who is brought back under compulsion, but as a freed slave going back to the master who was so good to me in in a parallel to the slave customs of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I can go back to God, put my ear to the post and say, pierce my ear, so to speak, uh, because my sin has been forgiven and because I will physically die, but I will spiritually live, I can share in Christ's triumphing over sin and death, and so on and so forth. I can affirm even in part satisfaction, because Jesus Christ has satisfied God. I don't have to think, does God just merely tolerate me, or is he looking to strike me down on a technicality? Because my sin has been forgiven, God has been satisfied. And he was satisfied by no less than God himself, so that satisfaction is infinite. And you can go on and on and on, but suffice it to say, I hold penal substitution so dearly because in my view and how I put things together in my head, PSA is the central node and every other theory of atonement connects to it and derives from it in some vital way. And to me, at least, from my mileage and my money, I think that is the healthiest and most useful way of looking at atonement. Well, it's it's something I think we would do well to consider more often. Uh, I agree that we've been traditionally more pragmatic, and I think that's been to our benefit. Um, but at the same time, these things are worth considering, uh, that, they're, that they're worth putting in front of us it's also worth considering if for no other reason than the fact that you know most of our uh most of the people surrounding us are probably if they're religious if they're a part of evangelicalism if you will they're probably considering them a little bit more than we are it doesn't necessarily make them uh right or wrong just that you know they they consider that specific aspect of our faith maybe more than we do uh, on average, this is something that you're just you're not going to hear it talked about with these with these labels, with these particular terms. You're going to hear people talk about it, of course. But the the label is really something that uh, is is going to be foreign to a lot of people. And because it's foreign to a lot of people, they're going to be a little bit more fearful uh, of it or at least approach it with a sense of trepidation. Thank you for listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast. We'll see you next time.